Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're in Parshat Emor. We're in the second triennial section, as you know. Um, and, you know, people sometimes ask me, why do you stay on the triennial cycle? Like, you know, you, you could pick something really cool, like, you know, I don't know, the menorah or something. You could pick something really cool from Emor if you didn't have to stay in the triennial. And that's really, really um, true. <laughs> but it's really easy if you don't read on the triennial to keep picking the stuff you like, right? And to keep picking the stuff you know about. And then you don't have to prepare quite as much. And then you get to talk about stuff that you want to talk about. Whereas if you stay reading in the triennial, then to be interested in what is sometimes just really boring, I'll just be honest, um, you have to get creative and you have to read and you have to study and you have to find a new way in. And so that's what I did this week. I had to spend a lot of time preparing this week because it was really, frankly, I was like, uh, what am I going to do with them? But um but I found some really um, interesting stuff that I studied with my Chabruta partner. So um, we'll, we'll take a look at that. So that's the part of the triennial we're going to go to um, is the part that uh, that I found some cool stuff about. All right. So wait before we get there. So just to remind everybody, we are we came out of Pesach and now we are in the counting of the Omer, um, which we're going to read about Um this morning, because that's in part, that's when Parshat Emor, it's in our triennial. And I'm going to put it on the screen for you. So you'll see, because um, I don't know exactly what verse. Um, but um, we're in the Parsha, we're in the portion of counting the Omer. So going from Pesach, headed towards Shavuot, because we're going to see right now in Leviticus, um, the commandment to do this business of counting the Omer. Um, and then we celebrate the holiday of Shavuot. Uh, and this actually is Lagba Omer, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, so Lagba Omer started last night for us. Um, it's ending for um, Barry and Mehmet, I think. Um, so uh, it's, yeah, so it started last night for us, and we're in Lagba Omer today, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means as well. All right, share screen. I'm starting towards the end section of the triennial of the second triennial reading. So what we read in the second year of a triennial cycle. All right. So what's been happening until now, because I want to, I want to say something about that too. What's been happening until now is talking about this, this idea in Hebrew here at the beginning of verse 32 is So there's a lot of that business that's happening in the beginning of the Parsha and in the second triennial before here is lo tichalulu. So, um, so this idea of, of not profaning. So we've, we've dealt with the idea of tame and tahor, impure and pure. So what is the opposite of kadosh, right? So we've talked a little bit about what is kadosh, kadusha, what is it exactly? We think we know, but then we kind of aren't sure. Um, but, but we, but what we know is that we are to be an Am Kadosh. We are to, they, they were to keep the Mishkan Kadosh. They were to keep, um, they were to keep the priests had to be Kadosh. So they're, they're, they, not just Tameh, not just pure, but, but this idea that they were, the priests were people who were Kadosh. They were set aside and they had to lean into that Kadusha and lo Tichalel and not to do the opposite of it, to drag it into the profane. Um, 
And so what we're getting are the ways that you load to Hallelu, that y'all should not profane. And then we get categories and there are like five categories of what we are not to profane. So the first is the priests shouldn't be profaned, nor the sanctuary, like that whole area of the Mishkan, um, nor offerings that are, um, that are not kadosh because they are unacceptable because the priests are in a state of impurity for some reason. And there's a way that you make the offerings not kadosh because they're offered at the wrong time. And then there's a whole category of just kind of miscellaneous. This is one of the miscellaneous of what we're not to, to, to have become um, profaned. All right. So Veloti Khaluluit Shame Kudchi, what one of the things we're not to to profane is God's name. That I may be sanctified in the midst of the Israelite people. Ani Adonai Mekadishem, who sanct I am Adonai who sanctifies you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why? To have a party, because you deserved it, because everyone should be free. No. And this is important to the rabbis in this whole business of Pes- that we're going to see from Pesach to Shavuot. Why were we brought out of the land of Egypt? So that I could be for you, God. Ani Adonai. I am Yodhei So the, the point of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the whole point of going out of Egypt is not freedom from, it's freedom for. Not freedom from oppression, freedom from marginalization, freedom from suffering. It is freedom to serve God as God, meaning not Pharaoh, meaning not what somebody else wants to tell us is the ultimate value. What we are going to make our um, Elohim is Yudhei That is the point of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Okay. That is a very different understanding than some would understand freedom and the value of freedom. This is the Jewish understanding. All right. And I, for me, I, I agree, right? This is freedom needs to have a point. Freedom needs to have a purpose. And I'm going to argue that, you know, like Jews have forever, that it's not the pursuit of happiness or self-actualization, right? The, the point is, liyot lachem Elohim ani Adonai. All right. More God says to Moshe, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, these are Mo'adei Adonai. These are the times that belong to yud Hey vav Hey, meaning these are holy times, the fixed times of yud Hey vav Hey, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. What's the first? Of course, Shabbos Kodesh, right? So the first is, for six days, you shall do your work. And on the seventh day, Shabbat Shabbaton, it is a Shabbat Mikra Kodesh, right? So it is, it is Kodesh. It is set aside. It is other. It is different. It belongs in the realm of Yotevavhei. And all of your work, you will not do. Shabbat because this is a Shabbat to Yotevavhei in all of your settlements. So the rabbis point out, this is not just a commandment not to work on Shabbat, but actually a positive commandment, 
You're supposed to be about something for six days. You're supposed to be doing something for six days. We are not a people who says you're supposed to be Shabbating all the time. No, there's a ratio of six to one. Six days, you're supposed to be about doing stuff in the world. And on one day, you Shabbat. All right, going on from Shabbat. Ela Moadei Adonai. All right, so here are the set times that, that are Kodesh, that are set aside. Um, and, you, and, you're, and there's a positive commandment to observe them. Bachodesh Harishon, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, between the between times, Pesach Ladonai. There's Pesach to Yotei Vafe. All right. So notice, of course, the year begins in the spring here. Passover happens in the first month of the year. The year begins in the spring. We have two calendrical systems in the Bible. One, the new year in the spring. We know, of course, that uh, later we, we go with the second system, which is the new year is in the fall. Um, right? The Babylonian influence wins out. In the end. All right. The Babylonians celebrated the coronation of the king every year and the beginning of the year in the fall. So that, that's what we do. We crown God as king in the fall. Uh, and But here, Chodesh uh, Arishon, the first month is Nisan. It is the month in which Pesach falls. So on the 14th day of the month, the first month, the month of Nisan, there is Pesach. So Pesach is the, the offering that is given, right, in memory of that first Pesach in Egypt. Now pay attention. And on the 15th day of the month, Chag HaMatzot. This is a seven-day festival of Matzot, of Matzah. Ladonai to Yutevafe, Shivat Yamim Matzot Tochelu. This festival, seven days you're going to eat matzah. That is different from Pesach. There is the offering of the lamb, and there is a seven day Chag Hamatzot starting the next day. The 14th is the Pesach. The 15th starts a seven day festival of matzah. We've talked about this in the past, right? The bringing together of the lambing festival and the new grain festival. Those two come together as semi-nomadic pastoralists that Israelites were and the now settled farmers um, that that Israel has. Those two traditions have to find a way to come together um, because they they live in tension. um, But then then the Israelites have to bring them together in their new cultic system and in their cultic calendar. And so comes together the lambing festival of the semi-nomadic pastoralists and the grain festival of the agricultural folks. Okay. So remember, the 15th starts Chag Hamatzot, a seven-day festival. Keep that in your brains. Bayom HaRishon Mikra Kodesh, the first day, Mikra Kodesh Yilelechem, is Yantif, right? The first day is going to be a day where you don't do any work. And you will bring, right, by fire to Yudhei for seven days. And on the seventh day, you also have Kodesh. It's, it's Yuntif. It's a holiday where you don't work. All right. The first day and the seventh day are set aside. They are Kadosh. They are Yom Tov. 
And God says to Moshe further, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when I bring you into the land that I'm giving to you and you reap its harvest, right? Now, here we go. Vehevetem et Omer Reshit. You will bring the first Omer of your harvest to the priest. So a sheaf. You will bring the first sheaf to the priest. And this is going to be um, an elevation offering. So the priest elevates the sheaf before God in acceptance on your behalf. The priest will elevate it when? Mimocharat HaShabbat. Right after HaShabbat, the Shabbat. What Shabbat? All right. This becomes the source of great rabbinic argument. Not even rabbinic. It's pre-rabbinic. This does not make clear what Shabbat we're referring to. And what we do, what the rabbis decided on, is the least obvious and the least straightforward option of what turns out to be four dates that this could be meaning. There are four different dates this means Shavuot falls on, depending on when you start the counting. I'm going to explain. Don't worry. <clears throat> the meal offering, right, is, is to be offered with oil, uh, an offering of, you know, and of course, this is God's reward, Reach Nichoach, the amazing f- smell of the offering and the libation of wine, a quarter of a hin. Until that very day, until you've brought the offering to your God, you shall eat no bread, right? You're going to eat only matzah, only unleavened bread. And from the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering, mimocharata Shabbat, remember after the Shabbat, the day after the Shabbat, you shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. You must count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days. Then you shall bring an offering of new grain to Adonai. You shall bring from your settlements two loaves of bread. So it's new grain. This is not the same grain that we had before in Chag HaMatzot because it's 50 days later. So what what harvest is this? All right, so this is the harvest that, that is Shavuot, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we're, we're going from the wheat to the next harvest 50 days later. So notice, then what are you going to do? You're going to bring an offering, right, of, of the grain. That makes sense. Right, you're gonna let it leaven, and you're gonna you're gonna bake bread. That makes sense for a for an offering for your your a grain harvest, right? And you're gonna also, of course, uh, give the animal offerings that are required. All right, and again, uh, the Kohen will elevate these, the lambs and the bread. All right. On that same day, you will hold a celebration. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall not work at your occupations. This is a law for all time in your settlements throughout the ages. That's Shavuot, people. That's it. That's all. That's all we get. The 50th day is this Moed. This is a time that's set aside as Kadosh. And you're going to have a celebration. When you reap the harvest of your land, because now we're talking about it's a harvest time, remember... Do not reap all the way to edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, Yudhevafe, am your God. Okay. Why could there be four possible dates for this? 
Why isn't it obvious? And how do we know when Shavuot is then? Well, the reality is we don't know when Shavuot is. What we know is that there's an argument about how to translate this text. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is go to the Torah.com. Yes, Jody, that's right. All right. The date of the Omer offering. So here, so and it's called Bikurim, because that's what we have in Torah that we just read, that that it's not called Shavuot. We call it that because it's the culmination of Shavuot, of weeks that we've been counting. The, the 49 days and on the 50th day is the culmination of all the Shavuot, all the weeks. But in Torah, we saw it referred to as Bikurim. And, and we're told that in Second Temple times, this is super important. It was a huge holiday. It was a pilgrimage festival. Um, and so people wanted to determine when they needed to travel to Jerusalem, right? So because there's a way to count this, there's a way if you look just at after the first cut of grain, which is the first thing we're told about the holiday, then then Shavuot, is th- that festival is completely dependent on when the first grain is cut. In Deuteronomy, this is what we're told. When you put the sickle to the grain, that's the day you start counting. So Deuteronomy disagrees with Leviticus to some extent. So that means the holiday of the 50th day from the first day moves depending on the agricultural conditions. When does the grain ripen? All right. Well, but if you look at Leviticus, what we're told is it's supposed to be after matzot. Because you have this matzot business, this chakot matzot, the seven-day festival, and then you're going to count your seven weeks. So we know it's after matzot. But is it after matzot is over? Or just after you've started celebrating matzot? Torah doesn't tell us. On the day after the Sabbath, we read that, Mimochorata Shabbat, on the day after the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath mean? It either means Shabbat, Saturday, or the rabbis in their craziness go ahead and read. It's like Shabbat Shabbaton when we talk about Yom Kippur. Shabbat is referring to the actual festival itself, the first day, the Kodesh day of Passover. So he gives you a nice little chart. All right. If Shabbat is referring to Saturday and it's going to be after Chag HaMatzot ends, then it's the day after Shabbat, of course, is Sunday. And so it's the Sunday after Chag HaMatzot. If Shabbat means Saturday, like Shabbat Shabbat, and it's just sometime after Matzot begins, then it's the day after Shabbat during the seven days of Chag HaMatzot. If Shabbat is referring to the first day of the festival and it has to be after Matzot ends, then then you don't have to worry about it being Sunday. It's just the day after Matzot because Shabbat is referring to the first day of the festival. If it's referring to the first day of the festival and it's only after Matzot begins, then it's the second day of Matzot. That is what we do. We do answer number four which is the least straightforward answer. Typically, Shabbat means Shabbat. That means that that Shavuot would always fall on a Sunday. That makes a little bit of sense if you think about it. If it's a pilgrimage festival, if you want people to really have Memorial Day weekend or Fourth of July weekend, you want to put it on a Sunday, this festival, right? So they really get some time off. They get Shabbat 
rolling right into this festival. So you'd want to arrive in Jerusalem before Shabbat. You hang out for Shabbat because you're not allowed to do anything anyway. And then you have the holiday. So it's a holiday weekend, right? We do this. We put our holidays on Mondays. For some of us, that wrecks the whole thing because our day off is already Monday. So we don't get a long weekend, those of us who are off on Mondays. All right, so here are the four possibilities. So it makes more sense that Shabbat means Shabbat, the day after Shabbat, meaning Sunday. And it's either going to be the Sunday after Matzot ends, because it's entirely after Chag HaMatzot, or just after Chag HaMatzot has started. Then it's the Sunday of Chag HaMatzot, the Sunday during Pesach. We don't do that. The rabbis called the festival Shabbat, and it starts after Chag HaMatzot begins. And so it's the second day of of Pesach for us. So that's when we start counting towards Shavuot is the second day of Pesach. Okay. So just so you know, the Sunday after Matzot ends, option number one was observed by the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Samaritans. Option number two was observed by the Karaites. Option number three um, was also observed by a sect of Israel. And option number four is referenced by Philo Josephus, uh, the Pharisees who were the, the, pre, the preceders of the rabbis. So if you want to say, when is Shavuot? And someone says, well, it starts the second day of Pesach. You could say, well, actually, there's been quite a discussion in our history about when Shavuot, when, uh, when we start counting the Omer. So Jews have never agreed on anything if there's an opportunity for us to not agree on it. Uh, and it was lived into by four different, four different types of folks. And apparently, the rabbis were pretty defensive about this. So this scholar is bringing forth um, Talmudic rantings of the rabbis about why their way of doing it is right, even though, are you ready for this? The Sadducees are not around anymore. The Essenes are not around anymore. Nobody who observes a different one is around anymore. But they still have to go on and on and on and on and on about how ridiculous the other systems are. Because, you know, they're rabbis. They have to be right. Okay, so... um, so there you go. So so those are the different ways of of beginning to count the Omer. Everyone agrees you count seven weeks of seven days. The 50th day is Bikurim, is when you bring your fruits, is when you bring your offering from the harvest, right? Right. Um, but what's missing, what's missing from that um, description of Shavuot? All right, you have the harvest, you put the sickle to the harvest is one explanation, or it's, you know, these other explanations we've seen that give us a more specific time to start counting, you bring your sheaf, what's missing? On the 50th day, woohoo, it's a grain party, we're going to have pizza, we're going to have to do? Huh? What to do? What to do on the 50th day, and what about the giving of the Ten Commandments and Torah? Oh, right, right, what's missing here? Uh, we have a party and we have some bread and we have some grain and we love leavened things, particularly after Pesach. Who loves a grilled cheese sandwich more than right after Pesach? Right. Each year it's a different craving. Right. Hamburger, grilled cheese, pizza, whatever it is, like we really are ready for it. So 
unleavened grain celebration. The next one, don't do that again because the people are going to get really mad and they're not going to keep it. You know they're not. So go ahead and celebrate leavening. Yay. Okay. That's what we have in Torah. That's it. So all of you, some of you have already identified what's missing. Uh, where's the giving of the Ten Commandments? Where's Sinai? Where's Revelation? Where's any of that stuff? It's not here. It's not there. It's not biblical. It's not part of Bikurim. It's not part of Shavuot, people. So just like Yom Shu'ah is all we have for the first for the first day of the seventh month, which is when we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, Yom Shu'ah, a day of Shu'ah. That's all we have. That's it. Nothing else. Not the new year. This is the new year. Nisan, the spring. So, okay, so that's all we have. What happens? Why, if it's such a big holiday, why did we need to add something else to it? Any guesses? Why do we have to add the Sinai business? It, it was a huge second temple festival. To, to add the spiritual part of, to it, not only the um, pag- paganic. Um. Oh, so we had a reason to party, says Susan. Well, isn't the harvest enough reason to celebrate? You're in the land that God brought you to. Pesach, we get out, and now we celebrate Shavuot because we're in this great land, and it's then, all you know, bounty, and it's all you know, awesome. Is something else happening in the area? Good question, Dana Fine. That is a good instinct. Um, part of what happens is we stop being mostly in the land of Israel. So that's part of it. Already in Second Temple times, there were a lot of a lot of Israelites living outside the land, um, and so we are the the meaning starts to get less if you're not harvesting. If you're not a farmer, then Shavuot doesn't have a lot of meaning to you, right? You're not living on that calendar. You're not working the land. So um, the rabbis. The rabbis are the ones who add the historical layer, the historical element to Shavuot. And they come up with, and I'm talking seriously complicated. They come up with the most complicated you've ever heard of. I have never understood it. Way to calculate the fact that if they left Egypt on the 14th, this is how we get Shavuot. This is how we know they got Matan Torah if you look at the Bible and you look at what it describes, this, this is how we know that Shavuot was the day they got Torah. And it is the most convoluted thing you've ever seen in your life. They are layering a historical meaning from of the Jewish people onto this festival to give it more weight and more meaning. And I think what Mehmet said uh, is uh, incredibly accurate that, that they needed they needed now more than just the agricultural connection to spiritually being grateful for the harvest. It was starting to not have the weight spiritually that it needed to. So let's look at this teaching um, by Shai Held that I really um, found fascinating. This is the one my, my uh, Haruta and I studied together. Um, and uh, let's, let's look. All right. On Pesach, here with the last sentence here, on Pesach, the Israelites celebrate having been redeemed from a foreign oppressive land. On Shavuot, they celebrate what God has bestowed upon them in the new promised land. The biblical holiday of Shavuot is purely agricultural, as we just saw, a celebration of God's provision of the harvest. But for the sages, for the rabbis, for Chazal, Chachamenu Zichronam Livracha, 
Shavuot takes on another historical dimension. If Pesach commemorates the exodus from Egypt, Shavuot commemorates the revelation on Mount Sinai, right? Though the association of Shavuot with Sinai lacks a biblical basis, there is something theologically profound about it. On Pesach, the Jews were liberated from slavery, but for what purpose? God does not demand simply that Pharaoh let my people go, but rather that the king let my people go that they may serve me. For Jewish tradition, so committed to the ideal of freedom for a sacred purpose, as opposed to mere freedom from external constraint, Pesach needs to lead somewhere. And Sinai Shavuot is that destination. Counting the 49 days of the Omer thus becomes an exercise in anticipating revelation. All right. So the rabbis felt it needed to go somewhere. The holiday of redemption and freedom, if it just stops in us getting to hang out in Israel and eat well, that wasn't enough for the rabbis is what he's arguing. There's a theological element to this layering of the historical revelation onto Shavuot. And that is that redemption, that Pesach needed a destination, that our freedom needed fulfillment. What is the fulfillment of our free status? It is to accept the Torah. It is to accept living in service of holiness. In counting these days each year, in other words, the Jewish people re-experience the excitement and anticipation that the first generation of liberated Israelites felt. We are no longer slaves, and soon we will receive the Torah, the greatest gift imaginable. So this is an imagining that the people have moved from slavery into the wilderness, aimless, like they don't know what's going on, that they're just... Hey, they're just following Moshe and then going where Moshe and the cloud and the pillar of fire tell them to go. Okay. Right. But, but if there's a goal, if there's something they're gonna, that's going to bring them together as a people in a different way, it is revelation that happens in the desert. So the first counting would have been from the, the, the Exodus to receiving Torah. So all of that would have happened in the wilderness. So we are we are mimicking that looking forward as a freed people with no purpose to receiving our mission, if you will, which is our being drafted by God um, to serve. And that happens at Sinai. Okay, so tradition associates, um, and then it talks about it moves. The Omer then moves from this excitement to a time of mourning during the Gaonic period. Marriages were discouraged, then haircutting, and eventually the use of musical instruments. Tradition associates the sadness of the Omer with the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. As recounted in the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of disciples, all of whom died at the same time. All of them died between Pesach and Shavuot. So in the Talmud, Rabbi Chama ben Bar-Abba um, argues one thing, and Rabbi Chia Bar Avin, uh, they agreed they died a cruel death. What was that death? Rabbi Nachman says it was diphtheria. So um, it could be a plague, but he says one common view was that in a veiled way, the Talmud is describing the fact that Rabbi Akiva's students followed his guidance and joined the Bar Kochba revolt against the Romans, which we know was a dismal failure. And that this is how his students died, because they revolted against Rome and they were all 
murdered um, or killed, right? In that, um, historically accurate or not, the idea that Rabbi Akiva's disciples died in a revolt against the Roman oppressors and the suggestion that they began to die on Pesach are enormously powerful and instructive. They offer a window into the promise and peril, the hope and tragedy of Exodus theology. What is he saying? Pesach is the reminiscence of the victory over the Egyptians, our oppressors. If, in any sense, Rabbi Akiva's students were rebelling against the oppressors, thinking God would help them and, and bring a Mashiach or whatever and restore the temple, blah, 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 and get rid of the Romans, Pesach would be a great time to do that, wouldn't it? Because it's the time that God defeated the Egyptians and we left slavery. Uh, the irony is, of course, it was the opposite. They were decimated. They were decimated. And we know what happened in response to the revolt against Rome. What happened? The destruction of the second temple, the exiling of our people, and the, the beginning of Galut, the beginning of living in exile. The irony is not lost, right, on those of us who, um, oh, hang on, Richard. You know that's not where I'm going to stop. Come on. Work with me here, people. So trust me, you have to trust me. Um, so the irony is that it was not, it not only didn't it work, they were crushed and it began the process of the Romans saying, we, we can't deal with these people anymore. They, they destroy the temple, they exile our people. Um, and Susan, not exactly true. Without the exile, there were still rabbis. The rabbis were pre-exilic, right? But the rabbis wouldn't have been the victors over Judaism. They wouldn't have had the power and the authority to make rabbinic Judaism, which is what we've inherited, right? Everything after the temple's destroyed that we do that's Jewish is the rabbis doing. They coexisted with the cultic... Um... Yeah. Yes, ah. they did. Yes, okay. they did. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were at, were at war with each other theologically. The priests who had become corrupt according to the rabbis. So they were already pushing back against, against the cultic system where it's just meant that you did the ritual perfectly. They were pushing back against that already before the destruction of the temple, but with the destruction of the temple, they win. All right. So that's what our author Shai Held, Rabbi Shai Held is pointing out. The irony that they begin to die on Shavuot, uh, on Pesach, um, in possibly a revolt against an oppressor that, that didn't work. We weren't redeemed. At that point, um, and then they they stopped dying on Shavuot. All right. W one day in the middle of all of that, one day, no students died. Lagba Omer. The 33rd day of the Omer. Today. Today, none of Akiva students died. It's a break in 50 days of tragedy and 50 days of death and 50 days of loss. There's a break. So there are great festivities. There have been great festivities. We studied this in our Va'ad last year that, you know, there are bonfires, you dance, you sing, because you, you haven't been able to do that. You're not supposed to play instruments. You're not supposed to get married. You're not supposed to cut your hair, right? There's been all this mourning, and now there's a break in the morning. And so M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And so, yay, let's have a party. Let's dance. Let's, okay, that's what happened in Israel. Last night, that's what happened. So many people, because of COVID 
And because of it having been shut down last year, ironically, it is so like, right, this story, there had been so much loss and grief and death. And and for them, the people who were involved in this incident, they, it was the loss of that connection to joy that f- for celebrating their holidays as a community, right, that COVID shut that down. Um, I don't know how aware they are of deaths from COVID or whatever. They're always you know, looking to, but what was most important is that they'd be able to celebrate as a community. They finally could. Um, and so um, they, they wanted to be able to celebrate again. And that is the fervor that you saw in how many people showed up, right? Hold it there. I'm coming back to it. Richard, hang with me. I'm coming back to that. And your point, Mama, did you have a question or a comment? Um, perhaps later you're explaining something else right now. Just go on. <laughs> All right. So, so hang on. So, uh, so where, where's Shai held going with this? So he says that this is, this is both the, the promise and the peril of Exodus theology. Is it, yeah, we got taken out of Egypt. Yeah, but we, but where were you, God? Thank you very much. When the Romans were schmeicing us and destroying our temple. Where's that? All that led to was galut, was to exile and being vulnerable for 2,000 years. Thank you. Uh, You're a little late to the party, God. It's 2,000 years. Hello. So then he does this interesting thing with creation, but we're not going to, we don't have time for that, even though it's lovely. Um, For Isaiah, The Exodus is not an episode lost in the midst of a long ago past. It is rather a recurrent possibility. It has happened before and it or its equivalent will happen again. If anything that will come to pass, if anything, what will yet come to pass will far transcend what transpired in the past. The prophet proclaims, thus says Adonai, Who made a road through the sea and a path through mighty waters? Who destroyed chariots and horses? Do not remember what happened of old or ponder what happened of yore. I am about to do something new. I will make a road through the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In the past, God made a rough road through the the sea. In the future, God will make one through the wilderness, right? So meaning don't look back to Egypt and say that was the big redemption. Uh Uh-uh, a bigger one is coming. Watch me says the prophet on behalf of God, watch me. You watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to schmice Babylonia. Didn't happen, did it? No, it did not happen. It should be, uh, so at the Song of the Sea, right, that we know each morning with that we are, the traditional Jews say that as part of davening, Jews do not merely recall a long past event buried in an unrecoverable past, right? The Song of the Sea recounts all that happened at the sea. Rather, we summon the past into the present and implicitly ask God to act the same way again. Redeem us. Redeem us. Go Aleinu, our Redeemer. What I'm suggesting, in other words, is that in Jewish liturgy, the Song of the Sea functions at once as a hymn and as a not quite spoken petition. What is implicit in the song he goes on to say is made clearer somewhere else in Musaf, whatever. We don't dab in Musaf, so forget about it. So why do we Jews, so why do Jews mourn when we count the Omer? As we've seen for Jewish theology, the Exodus is in a sense built into the universe. At any rate, the fact that God has risen up to liberate God's people instills the hope and the confidence that God will do so again. No claim could be more comforting to a people downtrodden by implacable foes. 
But now imagine Rabbi Akiva's students, afflicted by a merciless enemy, Rome. They take God's promise into their own hands and attempt to cast off the yoke of oppression, and they fail spectacularly. God is silent, seemingly unmoved, either by their suffering or by their longing. The Exodus may be a paradigm for how Jewish history is supposed to indeed destined to look, but for now, tragically, inexplicably, think Auschwitz. History makes the mockery of that paradigm. Rome, the Nazis, fill in the blank, is triumphant. A renewed Exodus remains, but a dim hope. And so we mourn. We mourn because our experience falls so unbearably short of the redemption that we have been promised and assured will come. There is a stunning degree of audacity and honesty in starting to grieve as Pesach begins because in fundamental respects, redeemed us once, will, despite all evidence to the contrary, redeem us a second time. Richard Rajay, I said to my colleague, I love this piece and I completely disagree with the ending. I completely disagree with the Chiddush. I was with him. I was with him. He had me. I was so with him. I was so excited until this. Because the Chiddush for me is grief does not have the final or even the loudest word. Because we affirm that we ended at Shavuot. We ended at the mountain. We ended at the place, the event, the the meeting up with the divine that gives us a roadmap to redemption because we're not waiting for God to do it. We're not waiting for God to come. We believe in Yemei HaMashiach. We believe in the Messianic age as Reconstructionist Jews. And what did Mordechai Kaplan and his students teach us? We have to build it. You have Torah? Go on. Take it. Reconstruct it. Yeah, Pesach, the redemption is not at hand. Yeah, Rome won. Yeah, the Nazis, to some extent, succeeded in in wiping out so many of our people. Absolutely. Redemption is not here. So we can grieve and we can mourn. But you're walking towards Shavuot. You're walking towards figuring out how to take Torah and reconstruct it. Take the wisdom, the values, the teachings, the history, the the mythology, all of it, our morals, the laws, take them, reconstruct them. Thereby will you bring about redemption. We're not waiting for it to come from somewhere else. We're not waiting for it to come from God. We don't believe in a supernatural God as reconstructionists. We do believe, Richard, <laughs> that, right, that we can take our access to the divine the power that makes for transformation, the power that makes for healing, the power that makes for forgiveness, the power that makes for courage, the power that makes for love. We can draw on that and the wisdom of the ages and the best thinking of our time, and we can make redemption a reality. That is our obligation. That is our mission as a people. Richard? Isn't isn't that what you just said? Isn't that kind of the whole point of the sort of the two... One of the things that we uh, read or hear during the High Holy Day services about, you know, it's it's not too far for you. In other words, where you know where are we supposed to go to get this wisdom? Where 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 is the roadmap? And God basically says, "You've got the roadmap." Right. And then and then in the early days of the Talmud, 
You have the disputations between the rabbis, and God tries to get involved, and they tell him to shut up and butt out. Lo bashamayim he, right? We'll right? we'll be in charge now. We'll, we'll, we'll decide what the road we, We'll is. decide, right? Because we saw how that went. <laughs> when we left it in your hands, we saw how that went. So, right, lo bashamayim he. You gave it to us. Now it's up to us. All right, so Barry, I'm curious. So it's too evangelical. What I said is too evangelical for you. Tell me, tell me what, tell me what's too no, evangelical. No, no, not not what you said. Uh, what, what was written before me? Can we infer that the second redemption is the founding of Israel? And so, and I said to that 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 notion is too evangelical for me. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So because yes, I'm someone who rejects that too. That no, that is not not the redemption. Look at the uh, mess we're in, right? Like, look at the mess. No, so that. That well, was we my had mess all over. We right? had mess after Egypt. It's not the mess, rather than um, it's supposed to be. Um, the founding of Israel was supposed to be us getting closer to the, to the holy, to the divine. Um, and I'm and I don't see that. We it's it's all about politics, about you know joining the forces of colonialism instead of being crushed by them. I completely right. understand why people choose to be on the stronger side rather than those getting crushed by colonialism. I totally get if you have a choice, but um, I don't think it's, it could be, you know, inferred that it's a, it's a sort of redemption. Right. Well, so, well some people, red- some people do go there, obviously, you know, Zionism, yeah. some Zionists among them, even Zionists <laughs> among them. Right. So some people go there. I, I reject that out of hand completely and entirely. Um, and so but what I want to say is that there is there's a con- the connection for me to Lagba Omer last night is part of is part of that. Right. That when you leave it, when the focus is on, you know, celebrating Shimon Bar Yochai and being at his grave and focusing on that realm and that the redemption's coming from God and the third temple and whatever, look what happened. Look what happened. Sure, it was an accident. Sure. But over 40 dead? You knew hundreds of thousands of people were coming and there weren't proper preparations. And Barry, you said that it's been all over the press and in tweets and whatever, that that's, that area has been a problem. And it isn't until this happens that it got dealt with. It wasn't until COVID happens that the dismantling of our CDC, the disempowerment of our doctors and the disconnection between government and our medical and scientists. And it, it wasn't until COVID that like it showed that, you, what the heck do you think? This is exactly my point in, in saying to my Haruta partner, I disagree with the ending. The ending of Shai Held's piece for me is, so the, yeah, Pesach, is, we, we can say the redemption's not here. It's, it's, it's such a mess. But we have to go to Shavuot. We have to take our wisdom tradition and say, Pikuach Nefesh, the saving of a human life, nothing is more important than that. Why weren't our agencies empowered? Oh, because we had politics disrupting them and saying, you know, that's not really our problem. It's not our responsibility. And so how many hundreds of thousands of people are dead? And Lagba Omer, this whole, you know, mystical other side, it's, you know, the grave of the great, you know, SBY, Shimon Bayerchai, and then, and God will bring redemption. And then you ignore the people that you know are going to show up and their safety. This is the opposite of the message of Pesach to Shavuot. It's the opposite of the message for me of counting the Omer. 
the point of counting is, yeah, you start with redemption. And we can acknowledge, like Rabbi Held says, that redemption's not here. And so we begin this period of mourning. But it ends with us being given the tools to bring about redemption. We have enough food to feed the whole world if we made it a priority. There's grain rotting in silos. We're dumping milk that we could feed the whole world if we used the call of our mission if we used the call to being holy and we took it seriously, we could, we're smart. We can figure out how to distribute food, but it's not a priority. Someone else is going to fix it or it's not our responsibility. That is not what Shavuot tells us. Shavuot says you are responsible. There's a threshold below which no human being should fall because all of us are created but Selim Elohim. Everyone is created in the image of God. And the great redemption, the great exodus that many of the prophets looked towards, by the way, was us having been orla goyim, a light unto the nations, meaning we were to be evangelicals. We were supposed to bring the good word. We were supposed to bring the idea of serving God as being our mission. And in that sense, Everyone by Yom Hahu Adonai Achad Ushmo Echad. And on that day, everyone will call God the same thing. Honey, that's proselytizing. That's what that is. We were supposed to imagine a redemption where we set the example, others followed, and the world is redeemed. There's a part of me that still believes fully in that mission. Not that everyone else needs to do it our way, but we should be contributing to changing the priorities and the culture and the language and the values and what we prioritize as a nation, us. And then to be able to, to work with other like-minded, like-hearted peoples to bring about Yemei Mashiach, to bring about a day when all children are fed, all children are safe, all children are given whatever it is they need to live into their full potential. That is still something that calls me. Climate change, solving climate change, 100%. If we don't do it, there won't be a planet with people on it for there to be any conversation about any of this. Right. So the mission feels more important to me and more compelling to me than ever before. Um, And I celebrate at Shavuot every year that we have a connection as a people. Lee, Lee and I were talking about this yesterday, that we have a connection to a tradition that challenges us. Um, Yes, Richard, you're right. And we talked about that too, (laughs) that we're afraid to event to evangelize because of our history of being persecuted for it. And murdered for it, right? That we talk about the martyrs on Yom Kippur, the martyrs who were tortured by the Romans for teaching Torah, right? And converting pagans um, to Judaism. And, and they were murdered for it quite actively and publicly. They were flayed alive. Flayed, al- like just like, you know, the horror has stayed with us. So we say, oh, we don't proselytize. We do not proselytize. Uh, we should. We should. Why shouldn't we? Not to the church, not to people who have a religious tradition, not to people who have a connection to their people's tradition or any other tradition. I'm not saying that. But Judaism should be competing in the free marketplace of ideas because the the price of not doing that is too high. We should be we should be converting every single person who's ready to throw their hat into this ring. Because the price of not fulfilling the vision is too high. 
and cynicism, despair, loneliness, all of it, learned helplessness, individuality being the God of the time, consuming being the goal, the mission of our time. All of that is so dangerous. And and I believe what we have, what Shavuot stands for, for me, both Pesach and Shavuot, our freedom. And then what our freedom is supposed to be about. Our freedom, we have to start there. We have to start at Pesach. Absolutely. Free. If you're not free, you can't make any of these choices to impact climate change, to, to help feed other people. If you, if you don't have freedom, you can't even start. If you don't have agency. So it starts with freedom. And believe me, as a woman, I don't take that, I don't take that lightly. Not just freedom, meaning living in a country where you're not slaves. I mean, not living in a household where I'm a slave. Because that's happening all over the world. Still, we know that. So I don't take my freedom for granted as a woman in 2021 at all. So it starts there that I have agency that I was taught to read. Um, that is, that is like really crucial. So it starts, it has to start at Pesach, but it's gotta, it's gotta have a destination. I agree with the rabbis. Go ahead and stick Shavuot, uh, stick Sinai on Shavuot. That's a good move. That was a good reconstruction of Shavuot because it works. Because it reminds us that we have a destination and we have a purpose to our freedom. And this world is not going to change until each people figure out how to live into their tradition, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be a religious tradition, their wisdom tradition, their philosophy, whatever, their sense of obligation. Um, until we figure out how to do that and take that seriously, Yimei Mashiach is not going to happen. The messianic age can't be made manifest. But for me, that's the goal. And I'm glad I have all of you as companions traveling that path um, that you all do take seriously, um, looking at our tradition, mining it, relating to it, relating to each other, relating to our festival calendar in a way that keeps us focused Um I'm so grateful. I'm so, so grateful um, for this community and for um, for peoples everywhere who are looking to figure out h- how to use the wisdom of the past to guide what we should be doing now and what, what it is we want to teach um, to our young ones who are going to build the future. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.